Blog Talk Radio. National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and the chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and I do see several guests in the chat room tonight, and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. Well, my guest tonight is Andy Combo Floyd. She is a writer, historian, and editor who lives at the edge of the Blue Ridge Mountains with her husband, four cats, four dogs, six goats, and 28 chickens. What a wonderful place to live and look at the animals. Well, her books include The Slaves Have Names, and she was on the show sharing that book and that story, Secrets, uh, Still Secrets, and Charlotte and the Twelve. Now, tonight she will discuss Charlotte and the Twelve, which is a historical fiction book for adults and young adults alike. So let me give a warm welcome to Andy Campbell-Floyd to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Andy. Thank you so much for having me, Bernice. Well, I am really happy to have you on for the second time. So let's start because I mentioned that this book is a historical fiction book, let's talk about what motivated you to write historical fiction. Sure. So I am a writer and a historian by training, and so in some ways it's just a logical development of what I do. But because I tend to write about the history and legacy of enslavement and the people who were enslaved and their descendants here in the United States, a topic that, as your listeners are going to know, it's very difficult to find a lot of information on. Uh, and you know, Bernice, the genealogy research, the historical research about enslaved people is very challenging. So I've written nonfiction about enslaved people, but I, I always get run up against that wall of lack of information. And so a historical fiction allows me 
to use the knowledge I have, but to tell a complete story. So I, I make everybody up, but use the facts of history to inform the plot and the characters that I'm writing about. So that's how I came to write about it. Oh, okay. So, you know, how much research is needed? And this is for anyone that's interested in writing historical fiction, just how much research is needed to just get into that knowledge base to write a historical fiction book? Yeah, a lot. I don't know if I can give a precise answer, but you need to be really well-versed in the period about which you're writing, uh, the subjects about which you're writing. And if you're writing about real-life people, people that actually live on the planet, you really need to know the ins and outs of their lives. And so that takes a fair amount of time and research and thinking, you know, really getting knowledgeable but also having your own perspective on the subject. Um, yeah, so it's not something that you can do easily or just sort of nonchalantly, especially if you're writing about people groups, I think, that have been marginalized in some way. Then the, I think the onus is to be even more respectful and uh, honest, but also very aware of your own perspective as you write about that. Right. Well, you know, as I started reading your book, I'm just going to throw out just a lot of different areas that I saw woven into your book. I'm just going to throw it out. Scandal, secrets, racism, Rosenwald schools, the healing circle and the talking stick, ghosts, genealogy, murder, Rape, reconciliation. I mean, you that's a lot. That's a <laughs> yes. whole lot. And so where did the whole character, where did these characters come from? And were they based on something that happened that you knew about? It's a good question. So Mary Steele, who is the central character of the book, is, fictional, but she's loosely based on me as a teenager. Um, but she's the only character that's really even loosely connected to a person who has lived. Um, the rest of the characters came to me. Charlotte, who is another one of the main characters in the book, uh, is inspired by a friend of mine's grandmother, great-grandmother, who was a woman who I have done genealogical research to help my friend find um, and she is, so she's based, she's given the name of that great-grandmother, but she, her character is actually based on my friend, who is a strong, confident woman. Um, he's very caring and very inspiring. And so, so in that sense, they're inspired by people, but the facts of the book aren't, they aren't taken from anything specific, um, but they are drawn from Incidents would be true of that time. So the book is set in rural southwestern Virginia, in a town, a fictional town called Terra Linda, and the events take place in a, in a Rosenwald school. And of course, there were Rosenwald schools all over the South, schools uh, for African American children in the rural South in the early to mid 20th century. And I, so I know a lot, a fair amount about Rosenwald schools, and I thought they would be an interesting place to set a book and they're also it was also an interesting opportunity to educate people about 
a part of American history a lot of people don't know. So many people tell me they had never heard of Rosenwald until they read the book. So I'm glad to educate them a little bit about that important part of our history. Right, and and I was glad to see the Rosenwald School even mentioned because that you do kind of give people the opportunity to go look up what what is a Rosenwald School. But right. you also back to you're talking about the setting. We're talking about rural Virginia, and you mentioned Mary Steele is a main character mm-hmm. as well as Charlotte, and that Charlotte is loosely based upon a friend's. Uh, family member. So tell mm-hmm. us about Charlotte. So Charlotte is a school teacher in this Rosenwald school. She's in her early 20s. Um, she, in my head, this isn't necessarily in the book, but in my mind, she has probably come from Richmond, from a city where she's been able to get a higher level of education than other African Americans might have been able to get in rural areas. Um, Personality-wise, she comes across as pretty stern, but she's really just very aware. Um, She loves her students. She really appreciates who they are as people, um, but she doesn't take any flack from them either. Um, And she is absolutely forever dedicated to them, which comes through the story, I hope. Yes, it does. Now, when you say dedicated to them, tell us who the them are that you're speaking of. Yeah, so in the book, uh, there are 12 students that are still with Charlotte at the time the book takes place. And so she is the the teacher in a single room, uh, K through 12, first grade through 12, although probably at this time it would have been 11th grade, school for this community. So she is teaching all of the children of this particular community, all the African-American children of this community. But in the book, she is really uh, taking care, because of the situation in the book, of the 12 students who are still with her, which is where the title comes from. Okay, now you said something about the situation. So what is the situation? (laughs) So the situation is that Charlotte and the 12 children are ghosts. Um, and they have been murdered in the 1950s in a racially motivated murder um, in the school. They die in the school. And so for the last, the the book is set in contemporary times, but for the last 50 or 60 years they have been haunting the school, and it's only when Mary Steele comes to the school that um, people begin to be aware that they are there um, because Mary can see ghosts. So, and that's the whole driving plot of the book. Mary needs to figure out, wants to figure out what has happened to Charlotte and these children so that they can go to rest and find some peace. Now, tell me, where did this story come from? I, I, I just have to, I have to know what's in your head now. You're I'll talking try. about ghosts and they were murdered and that Mary couldn't see the ghosts. Yeah, I don't actually have any idea where that comes from. As a person, I have a real interest in ghosts, um, although I'm not sure what I believe about them. Like, I don't have a a theory of whether ghosts are real or whether they're – I don't know what I think. But I have always been interested in them, and the more I've done historical research, the more I've done genealogical research, the more I know um, I come to understand ghosts as 
beneficent. You know, they're 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 helpful. Um, they're trying to tell people things. And a lot of my friends who do genealogy, you know, talk to their ancestors in a very real way. So I wanted to explore that, um, but I also wanted to make a point about how history doesn't ever really leave us. Um, it lingers forever. And so I had this vision of a Rosenwald school, and I had this image of a teacher um, and a little girl. In the book, the little girl that's most, the student that's most prominent is Aunt Henrietta. And I just had that image, and I knew in my head that they had died. And so I wanted to explore why they had died um, and explore what it would mean for a community to come to terms with a, a horrible murder um, that was still affecting them, you know, 60 years later. Now, when you talk about this horrible murder, and before I even get to that, there is a question in the chat, was Charlotte a Jean's teacher? Oh, No. In my head, she was not a jeans teacher. So there were jeans teachers in this area of Virginia, but she was not one. She was uh, probably hired, in my mind, hired out just by the community to come over from Richmond to teach in the school. Okay. Okay. So you're saying they were murdered, but at the time when Mary first encountered them, did she know that they were murdered, or how did how did she figure this out? She knows they're ghosts, and she says that, uh, you know, they're the kind you can see them, but you can also see through them. And, you know, she says, this is the, this book is a sequel to a book called Steel Secrets, and in the first book she says, you know, I've seen enough ghost television to be able to recognize a ghost when I see it. Um, but she also is careful around them because she doesn't know if they know they're dead. You know, she's not sure, and it turns out they do, and they're very aware, but... Um, she's always trying to, she doesn't know why she can see them. She's trying to figure that part out, too. Um, and so she just she just can recognize that they are not living people anymore. Um, but she is the only one that can see them until she touches the ghost in someone else's presence, and then other people can see them as well. Well, now, isn't that interesting? She can see them until she touches them, and then others could see them also. Mm-hmm. So then, so then, take us to to the next level because you, she's met Charlotte, she's met the children, but when mm-hmm. does she come to the realization that something has happened really bad? Yeah, she gets talking to Charlotte. Uh, she meets some people that were alumni of the school, so living people that attended the school, and, and they're pretty hostile to her. So she's a white girl. Um, she's in this black school, and nobody understands why she's there. She doesn't even quite know how she ends up there. It sort of magically happens. Um, and so she knows there's something going on around the school, but she doesn't know what it is. And so it's only after getting to know Charlotte and really basically earning Charlotte's trust that begin to understand the full story of what has happened. And so in the process she gets to know a student who had attended the school um, who, Darren, who tells her more of the story. And so she gets into conversations with people and it really is the matter of letting them get to know her and her really get to know them and then they begin to share their story with her. Okay, so she's building trust among them. 
Yes, ma'am. So take us to the next level because I'm really trying to get you to kind of give us the, the big picture of what's going on, but I'm also trying to get into what's coming out of your head uh, sure. so that you could could get us emotionally drawn into what's happening with Charlotte and the 12 and also right. what's happening in the community. Right. So Charlotte and the 12 children are killed um, uh, a young African-American girl is assaulted in their community in the 1950s. And law enforcement does not look into the assault at all. They basically ignore that it ever happened, which if you studied the history of the 1950s in the South and in the North sometimes, that was probably very likely what would have happened. And so this young woman's brother uh, goes after the boys he knows assaulted his sister. And he gets put in jail for that attack. And uh, after he gets out, those boys still want to get revenge on him. And so they come to the school and they burn it. They throw, they put a, a hose in the, in the school and kill everyone with carbon monoxide. And so... Uh, so the reason I guess these people are haunting the school is that they've died traumatically and that there's not ever been any reconciliation or resolution or justice around their murders. So how I came up with this, I mean, I've read, unfortunately, about racially motivated murders all over the South. Um, recently, I was just in D.C. at the new National Museum of African American History and Culture and got to see the wonderful gift of Emmett Till's coffin that his family has given there. And, I mean, that happened a lot. You know, people were killed because people did things that other people viewed as inappropriate. Um, and so I just have that history in my head, and I wanted to, you know, in some sense deal with it for myself by writing about it, but also try to tell a story that maybe wasn't so loaded because it's fiction. You know, it's a little, sometimes it's a little easier to get close to something if it's not true. And so even though there's, of course, I think truth here. So I wanted to just get at a story like that. So this image of these, these people being killed uh, by three teenage white guys just stuck with me. Um, partially because I feel like that's, historically accurate that could have happened um, but also because in communities small communities maybe large ones too um, people tend to cover things up when uh, the people who have been harmed are not as powerful and so uh, yeah so we see that a lot you know stories of you know famous athletes doing despicable things and kind of getting off scot-free because they have a reputation to protect so it still right. happens now, and I wanted to explore that. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned uh, going to the museum, and yes. not only was Emmett Till's uh, casket there, but also they had an image of the little girls, uh, the bombing yes. in Birmingham. Yes. And so I know as I read about these in this book about the 12 children, I thought about the little girls in Birmingham. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the sadness, I mean, the profound sadness 
of what happened, uh, it, it just really tugs at your heart, and it, just seeing it brought back even those memories. So as I read about the, the murder of the 12 children in the schools, I wondered if even that had something to do with you putting that in your book. It's very possible. I mean, I, I worked for a while at the Martin Luther King Papers, excuse me, at Stanford University, and so I studied a lot of civil rights history, and that the murder of the four little girls at that church was very similar. You know, somebody's angry about something or somebody is fearful. I'm not sure those things are always distinguishable, and so they do an act of hatred, Um against people that they don't know, because I think that's a key component, you know, and they do it against children without even really thinking about it. Um, you know, in the in Charlotte and the 12, the boys that commit this crime say, we were just mad and we were drinking and so we just did something stupid. Well, yeah, and then stupid killed people. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think all of that feeds into this. I mean, we see that happening over and over again in history. Right, right. You're just saying, well, they, they just, their impulse, they were just impulsive and they did it. But, yes, right. it did have an impact. It did have an impact on the community. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back uh, because we're going to talk a little bit more about writing and then we're going to go back to the story. So just a quick break, Okay. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share the deep passion, and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Andy Combo-Floyd share her new book, Charlotte and the Twelve, a still Secrets. Well, Andy, we have some questions coming out of the chat, and it's related more to the writing process. So can you share with us your writing process? 
How did you, as the author, piece together the story? And was this a daily writing exercise, or would something motivate you and you would piece it over a period of time, week or day, and then write it? Just just take us through how you pulled this entire story together. Sure. So I'm a pretty linear writer, and I'm a pretty disciplined writer when I'm working on a book. So I worked on this five days a week uh, for about six months, and I would write a 1,000 words a day. Towards the end, I picked up a little momentum, and I read, wrote faster. But uh, a 1,000 words a day meant, you know, it's about a 60,000-word book, so I could write it in 60 days. Um, so that's, that's my process. Um, I tend to write early in the morning. Um, we live on a farm, as your wonderful intro said, so I don't always get to write first thing because, you know, the goats want snacks. But I do try to write early in the day before, you know, before Facebook gets going good and before I get a bunch of emails and my mind gets distracted. So I would get up in the morning, I would make a cup of coffee, I'd take my hound dogs out to my office. I have an office that is the former summer kitchen on this, what was once a farm that enslaved people. So a woman cooked in my office and um, I like to go out there. It's a good place to write about history this way. Um, well, I sit down. Sometimes I do a little journaling just to kind of clear my head. And then I would pick up the story from where I left off the day before. Um, and I often stop my writing for the day in the middle of a sentence so that it's a little easier to go back into the story the next day. Um, and I just wrote it beginning to end. Um, like I said, I'm pretty linear. So I let them, let the characters tell me what's happening. I let um, new things evolved. Uh, Charlotte, uh, sorry, Mary developed sort of a new power kind of later in the book, which I had not seen coming at all. Um, so I do a whole draft beginning to end, and then I go print out the whole thing, and then I go back through and I edit it by hand. Then I type in my edit, and at that point, if I feel good about it, I hire an editor to go through it and uh, give me some feedback on it. So let me let's see if I understand this because I mean I did the the nano rhino one time and and I just wrote every morning I would get up and I would just write I wouldn't edit I wouldn't do anything I would just write so it sounds right. like you're saying that's what you're doing you're just writing yes to get yeah, it out not, of your head that's right I sort of live by that this old writing adage which is write hot edit cold. So I try not to overthink things. I try not to be, you know, I don't try to, I, for me it works best not to try to figure out where the story is going to go. Um, I just kind of, it sounds sort of pokey, but I trust the story to tell me where it needs to go. I don't worry about grammar. I don't worry about spelling. I can fix all that stuff later. I just try to let the story tell me what it needs to say and, and go from there. Okay, let me just get some things straight in my own head. So you sat down. You would get up every morning. You would sit down. Did you even know you were going to do this kind of story? I mean, we're not talking about an outline. You're just talking about sitting down and letting it guide you. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so there's two sort of series of writing. There's like a spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, there are people called the planners, and they're the folks that work best with an outline and a lot of the details figured out. They have you know, 
complex character sketches and things. And the other ones are what they call the panthers. People like me who write by the seat of our pants, sitting <laughs> down and letting it all go and just seeing mm-hmm. where it takes it. Um, for me, that feels more authentic, and that doesn't mean it should feel that way for everybody. That's just what is true for me. But on a book like this, I would only be able to do this because I've done, you know, 10 years of research on the history and legacy of slavery and civil rights and southern communities and racial tension and all those things. That stuff is already all in my head. So I can kind of pull from it without having to go and grab a book and research and those kinds of things. Okay, so there's another question coming out of the chat. Do the characters sometimes take over their role in the story? Oh, yeah, man. I wish I could control them. It would make it a lot easier. But, yeah, all the time, <laughs> there's, you know, they have things to say. You know, Carrie's loosely based on me, so in some sense I have a little bit more control of her. But Charlotte had stuff to say that I was like, Charlotte, I don't even know where that's coming from. I mean, I mean, obviously, in some sense, it's coming out of my brain. I've heard somebody probably say something like that at some point or something. But she had her own personality, and I would be doing her an injustice to try to make her how I want her to be when this is how she actually is. You know, she exists in the world in some way, just like every other human being exists in the world. Mhm. Mhm. Okay, so let's go back to the story for a minute because, you know, some of these questions were coming out of the chat room because we we have individuals who are very much interested in historical writing historical fiction. Mm-hmm. And it's in basically you I mean every genealogist probably has a historical uh fiction novel in their head because they they have done so much research on their family and and looked at, at what's going on in the community. So let's go back to uh, the story for a minute. So we know who Charlotte is. Charlotte is the teacher. We know that Mary can see ghosts, and she's the one that ends up doing some research on what mm-hmm. happened. So take us where Mary then goes next. Yeah, so Mary ends up going to, so Terra Linda, the town is based loosely on a town here in Virginia called Bina Vista. It's actually the town that my husband grew up in and that his father grew up in. Um, loosely based. I don't want anybody thinking like people in Terra Linda, you know, are terrible people because they're not, you know. So, but it's, Bina Vista sits next to Lexington. And Lexington is the school where the Virginia Military Institute is, where Washington and Lee University is. And it's the county seat. So when Mary needs more information, she ends up going to the county clerk's office, just like any other genealogist would, and and looking up some information, trying to find, she's looking there for information about the the men who committed these murders and trying to find something about their history, because I don't want to give away the whole story, but she she has some hints that there are things in their history that are shaping who they are and how they are acting in the world. So, and while she's in Lexington, she discovers she has this other power. Her friends kind of are with her and discover that she can she can do this thing, and um, and that leads her even deeper into the history around the families in this community and the legacies that are playing out even in 2016 in the book. 
which you would expect something like that to happen because although it happened a long time ago, you still have some of those individuals still alive. And the secret is still there within the community about this school. Yes. So, absolutely. With that, you went to the you you did the research now as Mary, and you're trying yes. to find more information. But then, isn't there a point in time where you have to bring other people into this story, so that they could then oh. help you? Oh yeah. So there's a whole sort of squad posse. I don't know what the cool word is for a group of people, but a group of people that help Mary. So. Um, Mary's best friend is named Marcy, and she's another high school student she helps. And then Mary's um, boyfriend is named Javier, and he's helpful to them. Marcy's girlfriend is named Nicole. She's working with them. And then um, their high school history teacher, Mr. Mead, is helping them with this project. The historical society director for the town is a woman named Shamila, and Shamila is helping them with lots of research. Um, and then Mary's mother and Mary's mother's boyfriend are also involved. And so she has this, Mary has this whole team of people around her that are working. With. And then in the, within the school itself, there's Darren, who was an alum. He's the one whose sister was assaulted. And then his brother, Micah. And they become integral to the story, too, because they're the ones that know the history they can tell the stories, um, and they become connected to Mary and her group of friends um, as they work to – they also are working to save this Rosenwald School, the building itself, and so they're all working together to do that. Yes, and I thought that it was interesting that you brought up the the school, that they're trying to actually save save that building uh, because mm-hmm. I remember seeing um, a newspaper article about a school in Virginia that was being restored, and some people in the community decided to to write on it and to to really cause damage to the building. Mm-hmm. And the community came out to uh, help repair some of the damages. And mm-hmm. I was wondering, did you take that from that incident in the community? I didn't. I had already started the book before that happened, but it, it definitely happens in many, many places. Um, preservation Virginia, which is the historic preservation organization here, has an initiative, and they organize an annual conference about preserving the Rosenwald School building. And so I often hear stories about schools that are vandalized or burned down, <clears throat> sometimes members of the community who attended the school. Um, I because may, I don't know, because there there's painful memories there or they don't think their use of the resources is wise. Um, sometimes it's just, you know, hoodlum kids coming out and being kids and graffitiing things and sometimes it's really racist, like in that incident, deliberately hateful acts. Um that just call to light, you know, what some people are still struggling with in their hearts. And so this wasn't drawn from a particular incident, um, but it certainly was drawn from my experience of, you know, there's three Rosenwald schools within about a five-mile radius of where I live now, and they're falling into disrepair more and more every day. And it takes a lot of resources to save them. So I wanted this community to be successful in saving theirs. Right. And so there's a point in time where 
you manage to get the community people to come together. Mm-hmm. And when you bring them together, you uh, you have what's called the healing circle. Mm-hmm. And so where did that come from? And please tell people what a healing circle is. Sure. So I took that idea from an organization that I'm a part of called Coming to the Table, which is an organization that is dedicated to uh, bringing the descendants of enslavers and the descendants of enslaved together to find healing. And so one of the things that we do in coming to the table is use a healing circle where the group sits in a circle and there's, sometimes there's questions, sometimes it's just an opportunity to share, and we pass a talking stick. So it can be anything. In the book, one of the talking sticks is a baby doll. And that just means that when the person holds that stick, uh, that thing, they are ha- they have the floor. They get to speak, and they get to share whatever's on their heart. And so it's a way of allowing people to talk without everybody being prepared to reply because you know your turn's going to come, you know, so you don't have to sort of, like, raise your hand or get excited. You know you're going to get to speak. So in the book, that happens sort of towards the end when they're trying to to come to some healing around these murders as a community. And they've invited the, the murderers in and the parents of the children in, and and they all sit in a circle and, and talk it through. Um, and it's not easy. It's not a – it's hard. It's not a comfortable conversation. Um, but they do it, and there's value in the doing of it. But there's also something else that happens in the in the healing circle, because mm-hmm. someone may say something extremely uh, racist, uh, very hurtful, and when yeah. that happens, people are then encouraged to say, "Ouch." That's right. And so yeah. tell us about that when they say, "Ouch." Yeah. So the idea is that you, when you're talking this vulnerably, people are going to say things that do hurt one another. So you say, ouch, and then the hope is that the conversation pauses there and that the people, the person who spoke and hurt someone and the person who was hurt have a dialogue in that moment and come to deeper understanding. So when I've seen that happen in healing circles, somebody would say something hurtful. Um, Maybe they speak a stereotype. And somebody says, ouch. And so the person that says, ouch, explains why they were hurt by that. You know, maybe they explain why it's a stereotype, why it's a hurtful stereotype. And the person who hurt them, who said this thing that was hurtful, has an opportunity to necessarily to defend themselves, because that's not what this is about, but to explain, oh, I was taught that stereotype when I was a kid, and I'm so sorry. I didn't even realize I thought that. Sometimes that's what people say, or... I never realized that would be hurtful to someone else, you know. So it's a chance to do a little healing. It's hard. Um, But right there in that moment, before that pain has a chance to fester or sort of infiltrate the whole group because people are hurting one another's feelings inadvertently and sometimes intentionally. But So I wanted that to be an important part of what happens in the book because they think that these are hard conversations, and you have to have some tools to deal with them. Right, right. Well, also, uh, you you then got into an interesting uh, piece of genealogy, 
And mm. so tell tell us what uh, you uncovered when you went into the genealogy. Yeah, so it becomes pretty clear as Mary starts doing this work that one of the murderers, um, his ancestor enslaved the family of one of these children. And so, which is not, if you've done genealogical research, particularly in small towns in the South, you're going to find that a lot. Um, but it's not something that people, that people talk about. Like, a lot of it has to do with shame on the side of the enslaver's family. They're embarrassed or ashamed, or, or they do that, because of that, they do that thing where they're like, it was so long ago, or it's not my personal responsibility, you know, the things people say. Um, and then there's, on, on the other side, in the enslaved people's family, there's sometimes a lot of shame. Um, sometimes there's a lot of just real pain around that. And so it's not talked about a lot. And so I wanted to, I wanted to call that to light, um, not because I, it's my job to make anybody talk about anything, but because in these small communities, like the community I live in right now, the house I live in, there were 13 people enslaved here in 1850. I know that from the slave census. Well, the people mm-hmm. who owned this house before us, they're the niece of that woman lives next door. And I've just found the descendants of the enslaved people here. They live like two minutes from one another, but I bet they mm-hmm. don't know that connection. And so it's not my job to necessarily make that connection for them, but there is something about being connected to one another, even through something so painful, that is really powerful. And so I wanted to explore that a little bit in the pages of the book. Right. Also, and and I can understand what you're saying, also um, you bring in the whole issue of law and law enforcement and the role of the police. And so why did you feel it was important for you to bring in that aspect of what was going on in the community? Yeah, um, part of it, of course, is driven by what's happened in the last few years with law enforcement. And I say that with deep respect for law enforcement officers as individuals, but I believe there's clearly something wrong in our policing system. Um, But also because it's historically just, true. Um, Police officers historically were not really tasked with protecting the African American community and I think it's helpful for us as 21st century individuals to know that history um, and own it and then if we own it maybe we can change it and maybe we have young African American men and women gunned down so often Um, maybe we can make some real change and and But there's also a police officer in the book who is wonderful and a real ally to everyone in the book and really working really hard with them, and it's Stephen Douglas. And so I do know, you know, there's there are no, like, uh, hard categories around groups of people. There are systems and things that don't necessarily work, but there are also wonderful individuals in every group. And so I wanted to... I wanted to just explore that a little bit because I think it's true and because it's relevant today. Right. It is relevant today. So back to the whole writing process. Now, I understand that you uh, you sponsor uh, some type of writer's retreat. Tell us about that. 
I do. Yes, here on our farm in uh, Virginia, which we live just north of Charlottesville, if your listeners are familiar with Charlottesville, so we're about, and, and we're about 90 minutes south of Washington, D.C., um, we do a writer's retreat. This year it will be June 23rd through the 25th, and it's for writers of all subject matters, all genres, um, and all experience levels. It's just an opportunity to come together, to meet other writers, talk to them about what we do, um, to share stories, to commiserate a little bit. Um, and my mom, my mother-in-law, and my stepmom make all the food. So it's a really good time together. We just hang out in our barn, um, and it's it's a really great experience. We have uh, space for 35 writers, so we're not trying to have hundreds of people here because we want to keep it personal and intimate. And it's me and two colleagues of mine, Sean Speaker and Kelly Kripschick, and we organize it together, and we're in the process of booking our guest speakers right now. So we'll have a full lineup very soon. So what is the the ultimate outcome of the writer's retreat once these 35 people leave? Yeah, hopefully they'll have some more knowledge. Hopefully they'll have some uh, focus, some goals. Hopefully they'll have sort of, I call it, refilling their well. You know, they'll have filled themselves up a little bit. Um, and they'll have 34 new colleagues, uh, 34 new compadres in the writing world. And writing, life, genealogy, and history research, pretty solitary work. And so those relationships are not something minor. They're really important. Right, right. So take us back to Charlotte and the 12, because we have covered several different aspects of this book. So where does this book take us as far as what 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 what's resolved if if that's a, a a good way of saying it yeah it's a good question um nothing and everything and that sounds sort of um like i'm <laughs> playing a game but i'm i'm really not i there isn't a tidy ending here because i don't think there's a tidy ending in this kind of pain and this kind of wound so there's some healing i mean people have are definitely healed a little bit. There's some forgiveness that's beginning to be extended. There's some ownership of what happened that's being ha- being extended. And all of that is enough to sort of release Charlotte and the children. And so I, I hope that's a message of hope for people that um, even though we're not going to get there, you know, Dr. King always said, may not get there with you. Not all going to get there together today, but what we do work to bring healing to um, can make a difference in the lives of people. So so there's some healing, there's some reconciliation, but it's not all tidy and not all easy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so uh, back to you personally, what has writing done to to you? What impact has it had on you? Yeah, it's everything to me. I mean, I it is the way I come to understand things. It is the way I come to know the world. It's the way I, I process emotion and pain. And um, it's the way I make good on history. You know, it's, it's my work of reparation in some ways um, is... It's 
say healthy. If I'm not writing, I'm not a particularly healthy person. And so it's it's really um, important to me for that. But it's also my way of connecting with other people. You know, I get to have conversations with people like you and people who read my books or people who want to write books. And, and that is a huge gift to me, to be able to connect with people that way. Yes, yes, like it is a gift. So um, are you working on any new novels? I have one more Steel Secrets book, I think, that I'm going to write, I hope, this year. Um, and it will be the third book in the trilogy. And I think I'll be done with the with these books after that. But it's going to take place, again, in the same town. Um, but it's going to center around a lynching. Um, not a lynching, not a historical lynching at all. I don't have a particular story in mind, but about the stories I've read and, and the people I know who've had family members lynch. Um, uh-huh. And I don't know yet where it'll go beyond that because I don't ever know where it is going to be when I get done until I get done. But uh, but that's that's the subject matter I'm most interested in exploring right now. Wow! And someone is asking for advice. What okay. would you say to someone that feels they have writer's block? Oh, they probably aren't going to like my answer, Bernice, but this is what I'd say. I would say there is no okay. such thing as writer's block. Um, plumbers don't get to have block. Teachers don't get to have block, you know. So writer's block is something that we create as a, as a and we sometimes use as an excuse. So I would say if you're feeling blocked, there's two things to interrogate. One is your fear. You know, are you afraid of something? Are you afraid of what people are going to think of your work? Are you gonna, afraid that you're not going to do it well enough? Are you afraid of what people will say about it? Um, and sometimes just owning what we're afraid of can free us up and let us write. So if it's, but if it's not fear, sometimes it's just not enough information. Like if you're trying to write about a subject that you don't know a lot about, then put Put the pen away for a little while and go read, go learn, um, make a plan for when you're going to come back to the page because it's really easy to stay away once you walk away, to set a date that you're going to come back and write. But go do more reading. Go do more research. Talk to people. Um, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got in, in graduate school was that people love to talk about what they're experts on, like, and we don't get to do that very often. So. Mm-hmm. Call somebody that's an expert on what you're writing about, you know, whether it's interviewing someone in your own family or it's calling, you know, a local college and talking to a professor about it. Ask some questions and get some more information. And then just write, even if it means you're just writing, I don't know what to write, I don't know what to write, I don't know what to write. Sometimes that will <laughs> shake things loose for you. <laughs> oh, okay. So just write, I don't know what to write, I don't want to. <laughs> okay. That's right. <laughs> Wow. So we're back to another question, and this is your book, uh, Slaves Have Names. Uh, What made you write this book? What made her write the book called Slaves Have Names as a white female? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, the most direct answer is I grew up on a slave plantation just south of where I live here in Virginia now. Um, and at some point I realized no one was talking about or knew anything about the people who were enslaved there, the people that built houses and cleared the land and built the roads and the walls we saw everywhere. And I wanted to know who those people were. And so 
I started to do some research on them, and by the grace of God and the work of the ancestors, I met some descendants, and I was, you know, still good friends of mine. And um, I'm really excited because they are finally getting, the enslaved people and their descendants are finally getting some recognition. These enslaved people helped build the University of Virginia, and finally, in April, the University of Virginia is going to dedicate a building to one of them, a man named Peyton Skipwith, who was a mason. Um, so I was very interested in the story because I was surrounded by it. You know, it was the place I call home, and I wanted to understand the people who built it. Um, and in the process of writing that book, I came to a place where I realized this is this isn't my life's work. This is what I am called to do. Um, not because it benefits me, but because it is important and because um, it matters. And I have been, by gift, given all of these pieces of education and experiences that allow me the opportunity to do it. So I try to use my privilege to bring these stories to light. Um, but incidentally, in the process of writing that book, I discovered that my combo ancestors are, are were all free people of color. So my first uh, ancestor was a man named Emmanuel Cambo, and he came over as a probably an indentured servant technically at the time, but a uh, slave from the territory that was called Angola. And he eventually got his freedom and bought land. And so my ancestors, most of the Cambos in the United States are, are black people, and they're my cousins, and they're amazing. So I definitely identify as white, but I'm super, super proud of my African-American heritage. Now, isn't that very interesting that you actually started off reviewing something else and found out information about yourself and your family heritage? Wonderful. Well, there's a question coming out of the chat, and they would like you to share a story about one of the descendants who brought a nephew to the cemetery. A nephew to brought the a nephew to the cemetery. Oh. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I'm like, I have to get my. So in the slaves have names. There's a family um, that was enslaved at this plantation. They were called the. They are the Creasy family, and Joe Creasy and I are dear friends. I adore Joe, and um, he brought a bunch of his nephews to the slave cemetery. Because the cemetery, while this was one of those rare slave cemeteries that was clearly marked and everybody had always known where it was, it had still fallen into some disrepair. And so he and his family came to help reconstruct the walls that bounded the cemetery. And so while he was there, he and I think there were four of his nephews, and then one of his great-nephews was there. And the great-nephew, I'd say he was about ten, he was very helpful for approximately 37 seconds because he's 10. And then, and then he and I were just <laughs> playing around with the dog and picking up sticks and stuff. But he finally looked at his dad at one point and said, son, uh, he said, dad, we're working like slaves. And his dad looked at him and said, son, no, we're not because we have a choice. And I thought, ah, this is why that kid is here today, like a chance to sort of know some of his family history but also to recognize um, some of what it was like for them and what the difference is for him now. It was a powerful moment. Yes. And, um, oh, it was a yes. It was, sounds like it was a powerful moment. Yes, ma'am. Well, there's one more question, and thank you for sharing that with us. 
Uh, one more question coming out of the chat. Uh, uh, have you taken the DNA test? And if you have, do you show any ties to Angolan people? My father has taken the test, um, and it does not show ties. Um, and I am not a genetic genealogist, so I'm sure Bernice and the rest of the guys probably can tell me a lot more about this. But what I understand from talking to a couple, couple of genetic genealogists is that the issue may be how far back the tie was, um, but we have very clearly, our, my cousin Andre has done our family tree, and it's very clear that we are all descended from the same individual. Um, so I'm hoping that the DNA tests get a little more sophisticated. It's been a few years, too. It's probably been five years since my father did it. So we'd like oh, to do okay. that and see if we get better uh-huh. results. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're getting close to the end of the show. Do you have any parting words you would like to share with the listeners before we close out tonight? I'm just really thrilled to be here. And um, I'm at andylit.com. If anybody needs writing help or assistance, you know, you can reach me. My email's everywhere there, and you can just send me a note. I'm happy to help. And I would just encourage you guys, if you have stories to tell, whether they're from your own family or stories that are inspired by your family but are actually fiction, right? they're important. And only you can tell them the way you will. So we need to hear them. That's right. And so with that said, everyone, I want to just, Thank Andy for coming on the show tonight, and I want everybody to remember, your ancestors, they left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. And don't forget to tell your story. So you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond and the AfroGenius Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji. And also watch out for the announcement for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Sewell-Smith. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. And I look forward to having all of you join me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Andy. Good night.
the one. 